What's up, Wildside besties and baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides. From homicides to hostides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. That's kind of what Dr. Feldman and I were just talking about is technology truly is on a hyperspeed. And even at my age, I feel like I am struggling to keep my head above water with <laughs> keeping up with technology. It's kind of wild. I am the same. I have no idea. No idea well, what are I'm doing. You, are you doing okay today, Joe? Everything? You're having a good Friday? Having a good Friday. A busy day, but ready to go. Well, we're so thankful, so appreciative that you could carve out a little bit of time for us. We really just cannot thank you enough for being so gracious and generous with your time. So thank you to both of you. If we, Dr. Feldman, if we hadn't said that to you already, thank you so much for carving out time. And we really want to um, be mindful of that. So we're going to try to stay on track. And um, if we are, you know, if you need to hop off for any reason, we will never get offended or get our feelings hurt. Just say, guys, you know, it's been great. I got to go. And, you know, like I said, whatever your schedule permits, we are more than, we're just so thankful to have any part of that time. Okay, great, great. Yeah. And so I think it's probably good etiquette, right, to just start off. And Joe and Dr. Feldman, you guys taking turns to share a little bit about who you are. And so our listeners know exactly who, who you are and the voices are coming from. Yeah, I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry, and my name is Mark Feldman. Uh, I work uh, at times, usually on dissertation committees, at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. I also have been studying medical deception, including medical child abuse and Munchausen by proxy, for about 30 years, which dates me. And I've written four books on the subject, as well as another book that actually has nothing to do with medical deception. But uh, these days, I do all I can to educate the public about it. And that's why I appreciate this invitation. Well, we're so glad to have you here. And real quick, what is your most current book that you have released? The most recent one is the book I'm most proud of. It's called Dying to be Ill, True Stories of Medical Deception. It came out a few years ago, and what makes it different is that it has first-person narratives from patients, families, uh, law enforcement, if necessary, nursing, therapists. That is, all these people wrote out their own experience, whether it was of adult factitious disorder, people making themselves sick, or medical child abuse, making their children sick. Uh, so you really get that firsthand perspective that's never been featured in the literature before. I love that so much. Is it uh, available just on Amazon? Where could our listeners go to purchase that? Yes, all the online booksellers, including Amazon and the publisher Routledge, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E dot com have it for sale, but actually it's cheaper on Amazon. So I'd suggest people go there. Awesome. Okay. Well, that is amazing. So thank you for that introduction, Dr. Feldman. Sure. 
I am Jordan Hope. I am a BSW and MSW student in St. Louis, Missouri. I'll be getting my MSW here uh, in December, so it's coming up very quickly. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing a dual, like, advanced program thing, so I'm working on both simultaneously. Ready to ready to be done but apart from schooling i am an independent contractor with munchausen support which is the only organization in the world currently that specifically works with those impacted by munchausen or munchausen by proxy abuse so through that i do a lot of consults i do one-on-one work with adult survivors i facilitate support groups and do different media things to help with education and things like that. We also are doing a lot. I have like 10 trainings so far set up this year throughout the U.S. to help educate different mental health professionals or healthcare providers or other professionals on how to investigate and how to specifically help victims and survivors. And it's an amazing site, and they have done an amazing job. I'm really proud. At first, I wasn't sure if the site would take off, but under Joe's leadership and that of Andrea Dunlop, whose idea at first was, it's become an invaluable resource and it's available at munchausensupport.com. That is just so amazing. And we'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Jordan, do you mind me asking the purpose of getting your MSW is, is that just to, is that just a personal growth thing for you or is there a specific clinical or professional goal with that? It's a great question. At this point, I honestly, mostly just so I can kind of continue learning and to have some letters on my name. I already am an expert in the field that I'm in, but having those letters does help with being able to publish different things, do research, have people listen a little bit more, take me more seriously. So that's that's so smart. And it and it's so true. I feel like sometimes it's one of those unfortunate truths. Like you would you shouldn't have to have letters behind your name. But that is, you know, it does bring a bit more weight to who you are and and like you said, getting published. So that's amazing that you're taking on because that is not an easy task to go back to school, especially in a dual program. So I I really applaud um, your tenacity and just your mission of wanting to help and bring education to this. I, and I will say, I, I feel like very popular subject. I mean, it's it's been quite sensationalized with the uh, release and we're not going to get into any of the Gypsy Rose stuff, but that is a, a a trending thing in our in our society in our culture right now. So I'm so glad to see that you guys are bringing cold hard facts, if you will, to kind of hopefully educate on something that I'm sure has a lot of misconceptions. There's an extraordinary number of misconceptions, and in fact, as a resource document, I typed up a list that I've acquired over the years and why there are fallacies that people seem routinely to come up with when it involves medical child abuse, which is the term I tend to use the most. Some people still, after it was identified in 1977 in England, still say it doesn't exist. 
And sometimes I'll say, how about if you talk to a survivor and tell the survivor it doesn't exist? And they usually decline. This is including journalists. So they have crusades of their own and motives of their own. Uh, so we've had to work really hard to counter the myths and make sure that the true hazards of medical child abuse and a mortality rate that can be as high as 9% are recognized and that this is taken as seriously as any other form of abuse. Yeah. Between Dr. Feldman and Joe, I have heard, and I, and I kind of want you both to talk on this a little bit, if you don't mind giving some clarity, but I've heard Munchausen, I've heard medical child abuse, I've heard factitious, I've, I've heard lots of words around this. Um, do you mind talking a little bit on, you know, again, which term you prefer, which one you feel is the most appropriate, and just kind of letting us know these are all the AKAs, if you will. Joe, do you want to take this? Um, I'll take part of it. I think that you have a pretty succinct way of putting it together. But I know, I think I even see it a little bit differently than Dr. Feldman in some ways, because I still do prefer using the term Munchausen by proxy. And I know a lot of experts in the field are moving away and using medical child abuse to describe it. Um, so the way I often explain it or see it, I mean, there's, like you said, medical child abuse factitious disorder imposed on another, which is the term that's in the DSM. There's Munchausen by proxy. I know there's another one as well that you'll hear all of these. I oftentimes I see medical child abuse as kind of the umbrella term. I think that a big reason we're moving away from the term Munchausen by proxy is more because of the connotation or the sensationalization of that term and how that's been used and depicted. I personally still think that there's not even like, I don't even think we've landed on the perfect term to describe this type of abuse. But the most important thing is it is in the DSM, but many experts, including myself, do not view it as a mental illness. It is a type of abuse. And so that's like a really, really important thing. I think sometimes saying medical child abuse can make it a little bit confusing because most people, when they think of Munchausen by proxy or medical child abuse, you think of someone with physical things going on, surgeries, feeding tubes, things like that. But there's two other things that we see a lot within this abuse. So there's psychological with different mental health disorders that are fabricated or induced and then there's also like educational so we see this in school systems with IEPs, mm. mm. autism ADHD and I think while those are also forms of medical abuse um, I think that it can be kind of harder to sometimes feel like you relate if those are the forms that you've experienced and so I I still struggle with the terminology side but oftentimes I use MVP abuse, I always make sure to add abuse at the end because it's not just Munchausen by proxy, it is abuse or the medical child abuse, especially we use more of the medical child abuse, especially within the legal system. So when we are trying to investigate or do things like that, that's like really important terminology to use. Okay. I fully agree. 
in that if someone approaches me with a question and they use the term Munchausen by proxy, I give my answer in terms of Munchausen by proxy. Far and away, it's the best known term out there. And I don't think any foot stomping by experts who say, well, it's really medical child abuse or it can be psychological child abuse or even adult abuse or pet abuse. Um, I don't think that's going to change that fact. So I go with the flow as opposed to being dogmatic about medical child abuse per se. Well, I so appreciate you guys' breakdown of that because what's so interesting, and, and Joe, you kind of beat me to one of my questions. Chelsea and I both work in the school systems, and a good friend and colleague of mine is a school psychologist. And I was telling her about, you know, the podcast, and I said, you know, Bethany, we're going to be interviewing some experts and a survivor. And she said, Bailey, I need you to ask them a question for me. Is there such thing as educational Munchausen, Munchausen by proxy? And she said, I swear to you that I have parents coming in here all the time saying my child is autistic or they have learning disabilities or this, that, and the other. And she's like, but the assessments show none of that. And so that was a whole brand new concept for me. And it's just fascinating, again, Joe, that you brought that up. Yeah, I've had a lot of people reach out through MunchausenSupport.com asking about like that exact thing. I've had teachers reach out uh, asking about, can't is this a thing? Because most people have never heard of that side of things. And I know Dr. Feldman and I talk a lot about how there's like there's a spectrum, right? So and it's hard. There's like there is invest proper investigation, which there are the APSAC created guidelines on how to properly investigate this type of abuse. And that has to be followed to tell is this Munchausen by pro is this person doing this abuse, committing this abuse for sympathy or for that, or are there other things going on? Could there be the illness anxiety like there could be other things happening so like investigation is so important and that being said most teachers I know that worked within a school system have experienced at least one situation where they've been very concerned about this going on yes years ago perhaps 10 years ago I co-authored what was turned out to be the longest article I've ever written in a medical journal called factitious disorder by proxy, which was a favorite term back then, in educational settings. And I lifted the best I could from that article and put it in the book, Dying to be Ill. What I do find in school settings is when teachers bring up the fact that a child labeled as autistic, in fact, doesn't have autism based on their daily contact with the child, uh, it creates extraordinary upheaval because the parents sometimes view that as a kind of badge of honor. They get special dispensation. Some of them demand that a nurse sit next to the child throughout the entire school day in case something happens or they claim the child has seizures or is tenuous medically. Uh, and unfortunately, school superintendents tend to side, at least in these cases, with the parents. They want to keep legal costs down. They don't want bad publicity because these parents often run to the media and hire attorneys. 
And uh, it's sad to see that teachers are often stranded alone in trying to handle these cases. Yeah, it's just so interesting to hear y'all talk about that because, again, until my, my colleague brought that up, it never even touched my radar, right? And, and I've been a therapist for over a decade, and literally I've worked with teenagers, adolescent through, you know, geriatric populations, and it's never been mentioned in a staff meeting. It's never been mentioned by fellow clinicians or peers or psychologists or psychiatrists or any professional, any layperson that I've ever had contact with in 10 years. It's never even been brought up. And so my mind is just, I'm just like, wow, did, I, did we miss so much about not even knowing that this was a piece of a puzzle potentially? I do think people will find dying to be helpful in that respect and that there's a table I provide of the steps that teachers, administrators, and others can take to try to cope with such a case when it arises. But it also speaks to the issue that we just need much broader recognition of medical child abuse, Munchausen by proxy, and the fact that it can arise in just about any setting you can think of. Dr. Feldman and Joe, do you find with, in a sense, the the invention, if you will, of the internet in being that we have so much quote-unquote information at our fingertips, do you find that there's a rise in this issue because we are having more and more parents, if you will, caregivers who can do a quick you know, Google search and say, like oh, Google doctors or Google MD, these Google MD, MD people, if you will, to label them as such, where they're like, oh my, oh, my, my kid has this, my kid has that. So does that make sense? Do we, do you guys see that that is, that's becoming more prevalent in our society is caregivers believing that their child has something wrong with them because of the influence of bad information on the internet? Well, we wouldn't really call that Munchausen by proxy per se, because in Munchausen by proxy or medical child abuse, the caregiver, which is almost always the child's mother, knows that either there's nothing wrong with the child or they have exaggerated, if not induced, what's wrong. Oh, it involves okay. deliberate deceit. Uh, whereas you're talking about situations that we used to call hypochondria. Uh, gotcha. It's now called illness anxiety disorder, where people honestly think there's something wrong. They immerse themselves in the medical literature, convince gotcha. themselves that they are sick or the child is sick. Um, and the approach to those cases is quite a bit different. But in terms of social media, I think there's been an explosion of Munchausen by proxy cases because of what you just said. You can become a near expert on any medical condition just by clicking on Wikipedia or WebMD or Medscape. And then you can uh, go to a support group online or a special interest group that focuses on that ailment. And many of them exist explicitly to provide support, not to question what they're told. And that can be so gratifying for the Munchausen by proxy perpetrator. Oh my goodness, that is so fascinating. 
And so what I'm hearing you say, Dr. Feldman, is kind of for the laypersons, the difference between Munchausen by proxy, if you will, and being a hypochondriac is really the intention behind it. Like they can look symptomatically very similar, but it's the it's the kind of underlying intention yes. behind that. That's a good way to put it. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah, there's a lot, Dr. Feldman and like through AppSec, there's a lot of warning signs and characteristics that you see that are very common within Munchausen by proxy situations specifically. And I know I've done consults with people who are, I'm not a doctor, of course, I can't diagnose, but I've had people, you know, ask like, hey, this thing is going on. Does this sound like Munchausen by proxy? And even without knowing or investigating, sometimes it can be very obvious that, no, this is more of possible like OCD or illness anxiety or something else just based off of a little bit of information that you get around things. Sometimes it, of course, is a lot harder to maybe figure out what might be going on underneath and the intentionality and all of that. And that's where, going back to the AppSec guidelines, like following those guidelines on investigation are so important. But there are like pretty distinct warning signs and characteristics that are going to be very different in presentation. Do you guys mind talking more on those warning signs? Bailey, I'm sorry, did I? You go. No, that was going to be my question. Okay. I was just uh, literally to piggyback off of that, you know, if somebody didn't have kind of a, a pocket DSM, right? and they didn't have access to the book or to the website and they're kind of with somebody. So other teachers, clinical professionals, laypersons, what would be kind of, if you guys had to give us a very quick checklist, and I know that this is much deeper and, and more complex than that, but enough to raise the first red flag to where there could be further questions and further investigations from those symptoms or signs. I think you spoke to one of them already with the teacher that you were talking about with how observation and what's observed and seen by the teacher or by the psychologist or the doctor is different than what's being reported by mother or per perpetrator or caretaker. That's like a very big one that is really important to notice and should start raising those red flags. Also, oftentimes... I know I can say within my own medical records, there's a lot of records where it'll say mother came into office very cheerful despite concerning medical questions and things like that. So cheerfulness or almost being happy that the child is sick or happy that things are complex and can't be figured out is going to be very different, right, than someone that you see that is really scared or anxious or that sort of presentation. There's... Oftentimes, if there's other children in the home, it might be one child was sick, and now all of a sudden this child's sick with all of these mystery illnesses and ailments and things like that. Or it might even be pets or older, other vulnerable adults in the home or things like that are very common as well. That is so interesting. Whenever you said pets, my first thought was, you know, the stereotype, lack of better words, the, the lonely widow who walks into the vet four times a week because peaches has another issue. And I wonder if, if kind of that's what you're speaking to, if there might be some underlying things with that, but they don't have maybe another human around in which, 
what would be the the victim of of their issues if you will and so it, it turns to the pet but that's just still again that's very interesting to me yes yeah i think dr feldman can speak more on this too but i know i especially more recently i've been doing a lot more research and trying to understand more of the like underneath this type of abuse and things like that because like i said i do not see it as a mental illness at all it is abuse i think a lot of times there are we see like underlying maybe mental health diagnoses and things um, like cluster B personality disorders can be pretty common, like borderline narcissism. I think that there's a, oftentimes some of the more severe cases you see, there might be like a psychopath traits or underlying like disorder with that. So I think that that's like another thing that kind of depends on what is underlying someone who's committing this type of abuse can sometimes end up showing you like what that abuse might end up looking more like, if that makes sense. And I'll add that I really agree that we get confused if we start to call Munchausen by proxy or medical child abuse a mental illness. And I, we may be in a minority among the members of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, which is APSAC, they tend to view it kind of as a mental illness. I've always been worried about that because perpetrators can then claim to be the helpless victim of a mental illness and therefore not responsible for their actions when, as I said before, this is deliberate deceit. We also have to point out that pedophilia is considered a mental illness in DSM, but we certainly prosecute sex offenders of children. And the same thing, I think, should apply to medical child abuse and Munchausen by proxy. And yet, in the court system, they're treated with kid gloves. It's very unusual for there to be a prison sentence associated with Munchausen by proxy. Instead, if anything, there's probation with expungement of the record. If the probation is completed successfully after three years, there are horror stories I could tell but won't of how this gets handled by Child Protective Services and by family court judges. Do you have some of those stories in your book, Dr. Yes, Feldman? Yes, certainly. Okay, perfect. So I have the luxury of being very, very good friends with a pediatrician here in town. And she is a phenomenal doctor, but she's also just such an advocate and such a warrior for for children. So I was talking with Dr. Hart and I asked her, I was like, Dr. Hart, you know, do you have any questions being a pediatrician, you know, being a medical provider? And she, of course, is like, oh my goodness, yes. So her question as a medical provider is, she said, so much of what I do is building relationships, yes, with the child, but also with the parent. We really want to establish a trusting relationship when, because we want to feel as, um, as it's a team who's taking care of this child. And she said, it's so hard and it's also scary to have this moment of, I really want to build a trusting relationship with a parent or a caregiver, but I, I'm, I'm thinking that there might be something going on. You know, she said, so how are we able to say you're making this up without saying 
you're making this up. She said, because for me as a pediatrician, it's really against my personality to be that aggressive and say, I think you're making this up. She's like, so can you maybe coach us a little bit on how could we approach or how could we address if we are viewing um, abuse in an, in a clinical setting? Yeah, I'll um, attempt to answer that. One of the things that a surprising number of doctors, including pediatricians, don't know is that in all 50 states in the District of Columbia, there are legal mandates that compel healthcare professionals and other mandated reporters to contact the authorities if they have even a reasonable suspicion that abuse of some sort, and that can be medical child abuse, is going on. They are not detectives in the sense that they don't need a smoking gun. They don't have to have proof. And it may be that uh, they contact Child Protective Services and they say, well, we've dealt with some cases. This one doesn't sound like it. Uh, that happens a lot. Or they can contact the police if they think that's indicated. But always err on the side of caution. Uh, know the warning signs. Get educated first. But then if those reasonable suspicions can be made in good faith, they should be reported. And when you talk about warning signs, again, I know we've kind of already talked on that a little bit, but would that fall into what Joe was talking about on, you know, the caregiver is very cheerful, very happy that they're here, despite, you know, it's a, it's a supposed horrible condition or an ailment. So things like that, just kind of being, um, being educated on those types of warning signs. Yes, very much so. And my own website, Munchausen.com, lists the warning signs I've developed over the years and also called from the literature and yeah. the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children in their guidelines, which are free and accessible online. They list uh, more warning signs. So there's no good excuse for not being informed, and it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot of work to access those warning signs. Thank you for providing that. The what's what's really interesting is what came to my mind when as we're talking about this conversation is again I'm I'm not a medical professional, but as a clinician I've worked in the substance abuse field primarily for my career. And one of my red flags when dealing with with somebody who struggles with addiction is I really focus on the medical records. And what I mean by that is if they give me permission to talk to a former doctor, a former prescriber, if they give me permission for that or not. Because what that tells me is if they do not give me permission for that, then there's usually something that they're trying to hide. And on top of that, if they've had multiple previous doctors for the same silo of issues, if you will. And so I say all of that to kind of put this layer on the factitious disorder side of it is I imagine that when a medical professional or a clinical professional is working with a parent that, that maybe they're having an inkling that this person might struggle with Munchausen by proxy, if you will, that even just taking a second to look through the medical records could really be a significant indicator in that case. Joe, you want to comment on that or would you like me to take it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the things that's on this list of warning signs is when a caretaker 
or perpetrator is unwilling to provide records or sign an ROI or things like that, that's definitely a huge red flag that there might be more going on. Yeah, and uh, doctors also have limited time. Yeah. It's not unusual for me in cases to get two or three bankers boxes filled with over 10,000 medical documents for a five-year-old. That's pretty telling to begin with, although the child may have an authentic series of medical ailments. There's no shortcut. I go through every page and match them or show that they don't match to the known warning signs of Munchausen by proxy and then take it from there. Most of the work I do is in the medical legal environment. That is, I'm contacted by a lawyer for the father or a lawyer uh, associated with child protective services, et cetera. And they have, they find it very telling when they have as much trouble as they sometimes have in getting the other side to hand over records. That means there's doctor shopping, hospital shopping, emergency room shopping, and they don't want to disclose it. You know, when Bailey and I were kind of racking our brains, because really, I feel like this is such an iceberg issue, right? Like, how do you how do you even condense it down, you know, to 45 minutes, an hour? Like, there's just so much going on. But one thing that I asked Bailey is, should we ask you guys, you guys are interviewed, you are experts in your field. Is there a question that you wish people would ask you? Because I feel like we, as you know, being on this side, wanting to do the interview, we try to think of good questions. But I kind of wanted to put the ball in you, in your court. Is there something that it's like nobody really ever asks us this? And I wish people would. I wish people would ask us this question. I wish people, you know, I wish we could talk more on this subject or I wish they were more interested in it, if you will. I think I one thing oh, <laughs> that I wish people asked more is, is the media accurate in their portrayal of Munchausen by proxy? Because I think that that is not really asked. I think people just think, oh, I have some sort of idea because I've seen the sixth sense or I've seen the act or I've seen sharp objects or I've seen it or whatever. All these different horror movies that depict it and but nobody like really questions any of that. Another thing that people don't question and that I see in every single article written about the subject is they say that the mother suffers from Munchausen by proxy. That's not something she suffers from. The suffering is done by the child. And again, we don't view it as a mental illness. Also, every single article I see says it's extraordinarily rare. And nobody bothers to question that or ask. Is it extraordinarily rare? They just make that assumption based on other articles they've seen. Actually, about 6% of the 3 million reports of alleged child abuse each year in the United States involve medical child abuse. Oh. So when you do the math, and I'm not that good at math, we're talking about a lot of cases, not proved, but, but in which the allegation is raised or the concern is raised. So no one has any business saying that it's extraordinarily rare. Compared to some forms of child abuse, it's unusual, but that's as far as I'll go. 
in minimizing the significance of medical child abuse, and it may be more lethal than any of the others. So that counterbalances that impression that it's rare. And with that, I'm going to have to go. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Feldman. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And I appreciate appearing with Joe. Always great to see you. First of all, Joe, thank you so much for staying on with us for a little bit longer. Oh, I have over an hour, so I'm good on time on my end. Good. You know, and and it was so interesting, you know, listening to Dr. Feldman and talking about the statistics and that there are 6%. But guys, I mean, that's of the known cases. Those are the people who are speaking out on this. That's exactly what I was going to say is that that's like the statistics that we have. But the reality is this abuse is so unknown, underreported not prosecuted or anything like that so there the chances of it being a lot higher are very likely and we see this all the time we see when hospitals do have education around this type of abuse there are more reports that are made there are people out there who like in lehigh lehigh pennsylvania there were people protesting about medical kidnapping and all of their big claims in these articles was that well they have the most accused munchausen by proxy cases and all of this stuff and the reality is yes they have more accusations or they're doing more investigations because they have the education and awareness around this type of abuse so they know to be lo- what to be looking out for in these cases it's not yeah it doesn't <laughs> make it more clear that there's medical kidnapping or anything like that joe if you don't mind since dr feldman has hopped off and you're now kind of our captive audience and hopefully we get to be yours do you mind if we kind of start transitioning into a little bit more personal questions with um, you being a survivor are you comfortable with that absolutely you know another thing that my friend dr hart asked is in your opinion in your experience do you think that the perpetrator the caregiver is it almost like a form of addiction? Do you think that they can stop it? And do you think that they can control it? Do you think they are in control of their behavior? And I know that I have a feeling on what you're going to say, because we've talked about like, it's not a mental illness. I absolutely do not think that it's a form of addiction. Um, I think, I mean, it's a, it's abuse at the end of the day, like it is abuse. Once Mm -hmm. you, you know, there is Munchausen syndrome where somebody is doing this doing these things fabricating inducing exaggerating illness in themselves that i do see as a mental illness that i can see addictive tendencies with that sort of thing this i really need to get this care and all those things once you are doing that to another human being or another living being for that matter animals are included Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that like that crosses the line and is no longer an addiction but it, it is abuse Mm-hmm. It is boundary violating behavior, right? It's a behavioral decision behind stepping over that realm of you don't go here, mm-hmm. right? Normal, healthy, functioning, kind people do not step over this threshold. Yeah, you wouldn't say, you know, when you think of 
intimate partner violence or things like that, you wouldn't say like, oh, physical abuse or this type of abuse is addiction. Like that isn't like how you would approach the situation. And that I feel like is the same exact thing when it comes to Munchausen by proxy or medical child abuse. Mm -hmm. I think that people get the lines so blurred on is this a mental illness? Is this person just sick? Are they aware of what they're doing? Um, and the reality is, like we've talked about, yes, they are aware. There is a model that was created called the accepts model that can be used for if there is a perpetrator that is willing to acknowledge what they're doing and get help. But the reality is, I don't know if there's been anyone who's actually gone through that process because most of the time perpetrators will never get to the point of the acknowledging or saying that what they've done sometimes people will admit to it when they have to is more still for that manipulation or to try to get out of legal things but it's typically not coming like from the heart or like actually trying to do things to change yeah Yeah, what would you say is because while you're sitting here talking my brain is just kind of going 100 miles an hour. And my question that, I, that keeps coming up to myself is, like, what's the what's the goal? Why? Right? Why do this behavior? Why, you know, drag your child to hospital to hospital and force them into surgeries to force them to take medications, force feeding tubes down their throat? Like, why? What is the gain for the perpetrator? Yeah, that's actually, like, where this is how you know if it's Munchausen by proxy or if there's something else going on is that the main goal of what the perpetrator is trying to get is there's no monetary gain that they're going for. They're not doing it for money. There are times within Munchausen by proxy abuse where people will receive disability money or will do GoFundMe pages or fundraising or things like that. And that's that's fraud. That's malingering. That's like a very separate thing going on alongside but munchausen by proxy abuse specifically is when they are getting sympathy and attention and there isn't other gain that they're trying to get out of these situations like i said i think that there's like a whole spectrum i mean you see some victims or survivors of this abuse that have had countless surgeries and feeding tubes and siblings that have died and things like that and then you also see the side where There weren't even that many doctors involved. There wasn't a lot of invasive testing or things, but there were still the fabrications and all of that. And both can affect a survivor similarly. It can very much affect a survivor similarly. But I do think that oftentimes the underlying struggles that or whatever's going under on underneath of the perpetrator might be like different in those cases. So that might be where you see like borderliner narcissism underneath versus like psychopathy and that sort of stuff. Joe, we've talked a lot, I feel like in a little bit more general terms, do you feel comfortable with telling us what happened in your case? What did you personally experience? Are you okay with talking about that? Yeah, absolutely. So In my case, I was born premature. I was born two and a half months early, four pounds, seven ounces, 17 and a half inches long. Um, And we do see that a lot within 
on chosen by proxy cases. There's a lot of survivors or victims are born premature. We don't in the field necessarily know for sure why. Obviously, there's suspicion of what mom might be doing to induce these things, but there's no research as far as I'm aware at this point on that. So I was born early and according to my mom and the records, once I left the hospital, I stopped breathing and turned purple and we had to turn right back around and go back to the hospital. And then that kind of was the beginning and I spent decades in and out of the hospital after that. But my mom, her biggest claims were that I had a rare blood disease called neutropenia, which is a blood disease that affects your white blood cells and tends to make it so you get sick more often than other people. And by the age of one, my records show that I did not have that disorder, but my mom still, I mean, I, I thought I had this rare blood disease until I was 22. So I had no idea. Um, and I was tested over and over and treated and things like that and her other things were that I had severe asthma once again I actually very recently within the past year found out that I most likely have never even had asthma at all I do have something called vocal cord dysfunction which can sometimes have similar symptoms but the most likely the vocal cord dysfunction was caused by the Munchausen by proxy abuse. So very different. So I was on nebulizers, steroids, in and out of the ER, all of these different things for asthma that I never actually had. I thought I couldn't run more than a block without having what I thought was an asthma attack. Now I know it was either vocal cord dysfunction stuff or literal just a panic attack. So that was kind of her main things and then a variety of other things. I mean, I had feeding tubes on and off through early childhood because she would claim that I had really weird eating patterns or I refused to eat. In my records, it says at one and a half, I would induce vomiting on myself, uh, which is not normal. <laughs> Obviously, that would be a learned behavior. By the age of two, I had tested positive for acetaminophen overdose and possible opiate overdose. And then by the age of four, they had done a, a report. They had done tried to do an investigation on Munchausen by proxy specifically. And they had video surveillance of over-reporting. And they were looking for, uh, they believed she was inducing vomiting on me by various means, my records say. However, with all of that and then all that continued, I was never taken out of the home for that abuse. There were times that they would give saline placebos and things like that, which means they obviously were very aware of what was going on, but nothing nothing ended up happening. Um, okay, two things. One, three things. One, I'm so very sorry for your experience as a victim at the hands of your own mother. Number two, that pisses me off, okay? If I can just say for you, this like I'm a natural kind of like protective. And when I hear you tell your story, I kind of want to throw bows with your mom. Right. And I say that with the most respect and the most love because my brain works in images and I picture you as a baby and I can literally feel the heat right everywhere. That's my own stuff. I acknowledge that. But also 
why 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 was nothing why was nothing done why why and I'm sure you've had this question right and I almost feel like it's not fair for me to be like this is crap why is this happening when you were the one who lived through it but were there ever any indications as to why Child Protective Services were not contacted or involved in the case or anything like that? There's so much to all of it. You know, I didn't even mention, but at 15, so this abuse kept going on, of course. And at 14, I was taken out of the home by CPS, but it had nothing to do with the Munchausen by proxy. It was because my mom was also an alcoholic. And that was literally it. That's why I was taken out. I was put back in less than a year later, all of that. And then at the age of 15, I had back surgery. I had an L5-S1 spinal fusion. I have two rods and four screws in my back that were completely unnecessary. And a lot of people really question like, oh, well, you were a teenager. Why wouldn't you have said something? How didn't you know? How did you let this happen? Sort of things. And I even remember, you know, my whole life, people treated me like I was the one faking these things like I was the one just wanting attention or things like that and uh, I can remember like having casts on my arm for what I thought was a broken bone looking at my records I had a jammed thumb so I'm not really sure how the cast even happened but it was there but I was told that my thumb was broken right I was told that all these things are wrong and I can remember within all of that I sometimes would exaggerate or like make up symptoms or make things worse not for attention not because I even thought that I was like, faking anything but because I thought that since people didn't believe me I thought I needed to make things worse in order to actually get help and I didn't realize that I wasn't sick I was under the impression I was dying most of my life and that I was so ill and then when people would accuse me of faking things or tell me no you shouldn't do this or that I would feel like I had to make things worse so that I could actually get better because I didn't like, know that it was really like a psychological thing that right. was going on that that was what you in your mind you, the way that you knew how to advocate for yourself mm -hmm. so I don't think it's ever something that you you don't forget it right you don't you're always that's always going to be a part of who you are right but in your journey and I'm 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 kind of taking a bold stance of saying that you're healing because I assume that you are healing and you're in that process of a healing journey what are some of the things that you have kind of incorporated in this healing process of just kind of you know moving past that do you struggle with things like trust? Do you struggle with things like intuition? Yeah, intuition, intimacy. And and how do you how do you navigate through that? Do you feel like you're alone on the journey? Obviously, I'm asking you like four thousand questions <laughs> in one breath. And I'm so sorry. My brain is just going, but I'm just I guess me, I'm like how are you doing, Joe? Are you okay? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I remember I spoke at a colloquium last in June and last year, I guess. And um, after I presented, like it was a training, but I also shared my story. And I remember the first question someone asked was, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, that's like so sweet. 
because I often, you know, I go into these things to educate and bring awareness and I very much separate Right. All of like my stuff. Obviously, I talk about it, but it's like a very distant thing as I talk about it. So it's always really interesting to hear uh, the questions people ask. But I think there's a lot of things within my healing journey that I still, you know, have to be very, very aware of and I'm still working on. I think I'm a very far way into my healing journey. I've, within the past year, even created a life that I only ever saw when I closed my eyes and now it's like reality and I still question it I still have scarcity mindset I'm still afraid of losing everything because it feels like a dream it feels like this couldn't be the reality that I get to live in where I get to travel almost every month to different places and I get to live in a body that's relatively healthy and they get to you know last year I was a college cheerleader and I got to perform at nationals after having like a really traumatic experience having to be taken out when I was in high school so it's like you know, there's just so many things even just like I can walk down the street now without being terrified that I'm going to be kidnapped or murdered and that was something that I was told my whole life would happen if I left the house and so there's just so many things that I think so many people take for granted or don't realize like when you are so sheltered and go through so much abuse like you don't think about like just leaving your house can be so terrifying or like such a big deal but getting to like sit under a tree or something like that is just the most like life-giving experiences and I think the things that help me the most in my healing one is therapy <laughs> I love therapy I think that is so important to have someone and I'm grateful I have the accessibility and resources that I'm able to go to therapy and be with someone who can help me navigate all of these different things. I also, you know, I think I'm really privileged in the sense that I have like a very deep awareness and sense of self. And I think that that is something that not everybody has access mm -hmm. to. And I, I, don't know why I do I think it's just something I was born with yeah. but I think that that is a big reason I'm as far as I am in my journey I think having community has been huge oh. one of the most important things having spaces where I can talk to people about what's going on in my head or where I can just let go and play games and have fun and just be a normal adult living in the world, normal, quote unquote. Right. But it, uh, I think that that's been huge. I think after I got out of the home, I was homeless for a couple of years, my senior year and then of high school and then into my first year of college. But then once I like got out of all of that, then I was in and out of a treatment center for an eating disorder that I struggled with for a decade. And so I still, from birth until I was like 26 I had this identity that I was sick that I was ill that there was something wrong with me and I had this identity that there was something wrong with me and that I was ill and so building community with people who aren't from a treatment center or who are in other walks of life and not having to identify in that way has been one of the most healing things for me I still have 
some of my best friends are from treatment or a lot of my friends struggle with mental health things or are survivors of trauma or are neuroexpansive in different ways. And I also have a lot of time where I get to, like I said, just play games and like none of that does come up. And that I think has been a really big part of my healing. I think that and identity building in general, just recognizing mm-hmm. and learning more about my body. Like Bailey mentioned, being able to listen to my intuition and find that and trust that. Because one of the things I say with Munchausen by proxy is I really feel like it like affects you at like a DNA level. It affects every single yeah. part of you so deeply. When you find out, which most people don't even find out that they were a victims until they're in their 20s 30s 40s and beyond and so can you imagine going 20 plus years thinking you are xyz all to find out that absolutely none of that is real one person you love the most in the world was actually abusing you it's life shattering so being able to heal and be like hey i'm a person that's autistic i have adhd like I love nature and I love getting to like exercise and work out and be move my body and I love stuffed animals and Disney and you know getting to like explore all of these different identities and pieces of self have been so incredibly healing in my process of I guess like liberation and healing right Right. and you know just something that you that you said joe and if you don't want to answer this you don't have to if you want us to cut this out we can do that it's whatever you're comfortable with but on that topic and and i think it's so chelsea i know she said this in another episode before i know it sounds kind of um dramatic but like it's so brave of you to share your story so publicly and i just love you so much (laughs) i do like i just love the shit out of you and already, and I don't say, ask my sister how often I say stuff like that. Oh my gosh, I didn't okay? know you guys were sisters until right now. Yeah. That's so wild. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. And so there is this book, and I don't know if you've heard of it, but like my therapist brain, you have unlocked, you have unlocked stuff in it. There is this book by Dr. Anita Johnston called Eating in the Light of the Moon. Mm-hmm. And it, have you, have you read that book? I haven't read it. I've heard a lot about it. Oh, it is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. And Dr. Johnston is a professional with eating disorders. And she said the only common denominator that she's found in her 30 years of working with eating disorders is a disconnected sense of self with your intuition Mm. and as you were talking i was just like having like these little light bulb moments of that makes so much sense because when i've worked with people who struggled with eating disorders that's the first thing that i bring up and they're just like oh wow yeah because when your internal compass is now told that that was wrong the whole time your fundamental you are your fundamental kind of going what you were saying about like in your dna your core your fundamental basic human privilege that we're born with which is intuition is now you're now questioning that Mm -hmm. so you have literally nothing that says am i seeing this 
accurately? Am I feeling this accurately? Am I looking at this in a healthy way or a toxic way? I mean, it's like magnetic forces, like just rotating your compass all around. And I think for you to have landed on your feet and where you are at and sharing your story and choosing to do something beneficial because you have every justification to shrivel up and point your middle fingers at the world and say, screw you, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You have every justification to do that. And the fact that you're not and the fact that you are doubling down, I am so proud of you and I am so proud to know you. And I just want you to know how worthy you are mm -hmm. of the journey you're on and how valuable you are for that and how loved you are even if it's hard for you to believe that is my truth and yeah like good on you that you had the bravery that you were bold enough to say you know what I think there's got to be something more than this and I'm going to do that. Now, what can you say to the people who may, I hope, I hope you, whoever you are sitting in your Toyota Corolla <laughs> driving down the road listening to this, and you're thinking, holy buckets, I might be in this abuse. Like, this might be my life. What do you say to them? There's a few things that I always, like, want to say. One is reach out <laughs> munchausensupport.com there's a contact form that you can fill out those emails go to me i respond we have through the organization we have peer-led support groups for survivors mm -hmm. to help with creating community and having that support oftentimes i am the first survivor that most survivors talk to yeah. and that's really sad it's really sad that people feel so alone. If you try to Google as a survivor and you're like, oh my gosh, like what support is there for me? There's nothing besides mm -hmm. our organization. And we're trying to like, of course, build all mm -hmm. of those options and things like that. But it's really, really sad that there is no other support, but there is support. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I always want is for people to know that we do exist. Mm -hmm. We are here. You're not alone. There are other people that are in such similar spaces. And within that, knowing that there are people fighting for you. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. I think almost every survivor that reaches out to me wants to engage in advocacy in some way. Not always because they even like that's a passion of theirs, but because they don't want other people to feel alone or go through what they've gone through. And so I want people to know, want you to know, whoever's listening, that you can rest and heal. There are people fighting and we will continue that fight and hold that. And if someday like you get to a place where you still have that passion and that drive, let's talk. But it's also okay to rest and heal. You don't owe anyone anything you have done enough and survived enough. You can put it all away too. And Joe, thank you for, for saying that. What else can we do? Like what else can Chelsea and me do to advocate to spread awareness? Like, do you have any recommendations or thoughts for us? Just so, you know, we don't want to be a bystander. We want to roll our sleeves up and, and dig in as well. So 
what can we do to help? Mm-hmm. I think doing these interviews, first of all, is so important. I think that there is something about being able to get more education and awareness out there that is not sensationalized horror right. films. Um, as I spoke to earlier, I think one of the big dangers in how we see media covering one chasm by proxy is there's currently one survivor there's only one person (laughs) that has ever experienced this and so a lot of those people who see that still don't even think that this is a real thing they just think it was this one crazy quote-unquote situation that happened and they still have no idea of like what's really going on or you see all the horror films and think once again that it's just that it's not real it's just this thing that we can put to make things seem really scary when it's really a lot of people's lives yeah. a lot of people grew up in those homes with those things going on and just people don't know about it so I think the media presence is important of having like accurate education oh. and information talking to more survivors and creating more of that space I think also Of course, sharing the Munchausen support website or munchausen.com, having links for people to access the APSAC guidelines is really important. I have one other article that I often share with people that helps professionals on how to best report this to CPS and kind of walks through that process that I would be more than willing to share. And that's like another thing that can be helpful, you know, helping people have those options for education and training and i think also if you you know people in schools of course um, but things like that if you talk to the higher ups there and are like hey we know someone that would maybe do a training for us on this important type of abuse that we should be more aware of that's something that we offer through our organization and that once again is just a really important thing for not only like for you guys but for anyone listening any professional out there looking for different trainings or ways to get more educated on this abuse and kind of as we're getting towards the end so joe bailey and i are we're kind of researchers by hobby right like we we love we just kind of love geeking out nerding out so when dr feldman first brought up your name I, of course, just do my typical, you know, who is Jordan Absolutely. Hope? And I came across your TikTok account. And one of your best videos that you posted was, you know, and you were so comical about it. But when people are like, oh, yeah, well, at least your case wasn't as bad as Gypsy Rose. You know, and it's kind of, I know Bailey's always just like, don't get me started. But I'm hoping that you, I'm selfishly wanting you to talk a little bit, and like I said, in these final moments of like, if you think that, okay, well, but at least I'm not Gypsy Rose, like, at least it's not that bad. Like, what can you say to that? Like, it is bad, you know? And I'm sorry, I'm trying to put words in your mouth, and I will let you (laughs) put your own words in your own mouth. But like I said, that was just the best video or that I saw on your account is like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's funny cuz I posted that like over a year ago and then obviously now since she's out of prison and stuff like all of a sudden like it's starting to get so many more views again and stuff and it's just kind of funny like how it's mm-hmm. recirculating. Mm-hmm. But it's so true. Most 
so many times. I can't even count the amount of times that I've been compared to her or been told like, well, at least it wasn't this bad. And it's like, oh, I, you know, I do actually have like rods and screws in my back. I did like miss out on like 26 plus years of my life. Um, I am like navigating a lot on my own and fighting what feels like an uphill battle most days. But yeah, sure. Um, I think that it's so harmful and I can't tell you the harm that is currently happening for survivors right now. I've talked to so many people that are minimizing their experiences and what they've been through and comparing to Gypsy's case and things like that. And I, you know, I personally, I don't think that it is Gypsy's fault at all. I do not blame her for any of it. I I think that she's been put in a really crappy situation over right. and over and over again and still right. is. And um, she's still being victimized yes, in one way, well, shape, or form. Yeah, it's like she's mm-hmm. being victimized now she's, and she's being exploited. Yeah. And I think that it's hard because she's talked about wanting to be an advocate and wanting to kind of do help other survivors and things like that. And I think it's It's so sad to see that the reality of what's happening is with her case being what's kind of the only thing that's blowing up and not more just about Munchausen by proxy and other survivors and all of that. It's doing more damage. It's just Mm -hmm. there's the good sides, right? Like, I mean, we're sitting here talking and like people are like reaching out more and having more interest in talking about this. And there's the harm that's directly affecting victims and survivors of wow now I'm more alone I can't talk about this because xyz didn't happen and there's there's just so much danger in that because the reality is all survivors are survivors and no matter what it was like I said you may never have had any surgeries and you can have the same effects psychologically as someone who went through all of these other things so it just doesn't Even if the objective severity, like the physical severity looks different, the psychological impact can be just Mm -hmm. harmful. And it's just harmful to put out these other narratives. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing that up and shining light on that because that, again, and our listeners are probably going to get tired of us saying this, but that is a big goal for Chelsea and me is we want to be able to focus on advocacy and awareness, like using our platform for exactly what we're doing, right? Bringing you in and you getting to share your story so people can no longer kind of hide behind the media gloss, if you will. And and they're face-to-face with your voice. They hear your emotions. They hear your story and what happened to you. And I think that is just so important. And I'm just really grateful to be able to have heard from you and for you to share your experience. I mean, I just have a lot of gratitude. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jordan, we always end saying you are worthy, you are loved, and you are valued. And I hope that you can keep that in a pocket. I hope that you can write that on your heart and know if nothing else, if you're having a day where you're like, everything sucks and Starbucks got my name wrong, just remember that you have two fangirls over here and we are rooting for you and we're here to support you. Yes, anything we can do to 
if we can ever be somebody that you're like, hey, I'm having a bad day. <laughs> like, I know that that's kind of weird, but I, I just, yeah, Bailey and I are just so um, thankful for your time, for your energy, mm-hmm. for everything that you've done. And I, I think I'm so overwhelmed right now with all of this information that I'm going to have to stop myself from talking because I'm going to get into a rambling state, which is what I do. And Bailey's like, yep, there she goes. So, <laughs> uh, before I get further into my ramble, because I just am really overwhelmed and, and needing to process all this information, um, I'm just going to say air hug, air hug to you. And I'm going to pass that over to Bailey and let her do a better yeah. closing than I did. Nope. It was beautiful, Chelsea. And Joe, is there anything you know, before we put a nice pretty bow on this, is there anything that's still kind of on your chest or on your heart or on your mind that you really wanted to touch on or clarify or bring forth before we tie everything up? I think, I guess two things that I would just want to touch on. One being, I know like we talked about um, some of the underlying diagnoses that there can be with perpetrators of Munchausen by proxy abuse. And I have a very sensitive spot for talking about borderline because it has such a negative connotation. It is already villainized. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that I just always want to make it so clear that first of all, borderline personality disorder is like attachment trauma and someone that has borderline personality disorder is not like more likely to become a Munchausen by proxy perpetrator that's like not how that that works um so I just always want to like yeah just because someone has a personality disorder does not mean that they are way more likely to commit abuse um there's definitely just differences with that so I always want to make that clear because I think sometimes I don't want to be part of the villainizing of of that because I think that, yeah, I have a lot of friends that have borderline. And Absolutely. Well, just- and I've worked with many, many people who have been diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder. And at least to my knowledge now, right, looking back, not a single one of them have had, you know, any of these boundary violating behaviors to this magnitude or, or in this realm of things. So... Yes. Yeah. And thanks for saying that we, Bailey and I actually, Bailey primarily, but we, we talk a lot. We say that a lot in our podcasts of please hear us. We are not saying that if you have this, that means that you're going to be a serial killer, you know, like, so thank you for kind of bringing that back up because that is in a weird way. I don't even know if we, um, if that was like a conscious mission that we started, but I noticed we say that a lot of like, please do not confuse. Yes. They they can be separate entities. Yes. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. That's one of my, my big, big things. And the other thing is that I always, I probably like need to become less I don't know. I'll just say it. I don't need to preface it. But I always want to make it clear that like to this day, I still love my mom uh, very deeply, probably more than anything, anyone in the world. And, you know, I'm coming to terms with the fact that that 
has never and can never be reciprocated. And I still have to, of course, keep myself safe and what that means for my boundaries. But I always bring up that, you know, I am an abolitionist, which is different than many of the people in my field. I literally work alongside criminal investigators and people in the legal field. But I don't think that my mom needed to go to prison. I think that my mom needed boundaries where she couldn't be around certain people, vulnerable people for people's safety. And I still think that my mom deserves respect and love from those that can safely give that. So I always just want to make make that clear because I, I don't excuse anything that was done to me. I also think that there's a lot of survivors that do think that their mother is an evil monster. And I think that's totally appropriate and totally okay. Every survivor is going to have a different viewpoint on how they view mom after all of everything comes to light. But that is very much, very much my view. I still love her deeply. I don't think what she did was okay. I want nothing to do with her in my current okay. life. Um, right. I said my goodbyes but no I, I think that's a really important aspect um it's almost in a in a weird way i hope that some listeners almost feel um they're given permission like it, it really is okay for you to and maybe it is grappling with but that might be a very normal thing for some people some survivors to like but i still really love them and it's like that's okay yes. i hope you do i you know and Bailey and I have talked about that idea with our parents and, and by no means did we have anything, but I think every relationship, right? Every single relationship, whether it be parent, child or spouse or whatever it is, you have those moments where you're just like, man, that was not good. I really don't, I kind of have to draw a boundary with that. Um, but it's also still okay. Like that doesn't mean that you hate them. It doesn't mean that you want any ill will towards them, you know, or anything like Absolutely. that. But yeah, like that's, um, that's a natural process with any relationship is some of those boundaries are a little bit more hard set, you know, yeah. like you said, some have to be really, really drawn in that sand. And it's like, we just can never cross this. But again, that doesn't rob you or rob the the fact that you can still have love and you can still have an endearment towards somebody absolutely and it's so different i know i've only been in the field a year and a half and sadly i am pretty sure that i have the most experience working with adult survivors at this point and what i've seen is like such so many differences and i've seen like a lot of mixes right like i know for myself I mean, I have journal entries where I have been so angry and not wanted anything to do with my mom and called right. her really mean things and stuff. And that's totally valid and totally understandable. And then I have moments where I still do love her and care about her Absolutely. and still have boundaries. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are survivors that are still in contact with mom. There are survivors mm -hmm. that have no contact. There are survivors that go back and forth. Like all right. of it is such a journey and everyone's journey is going to have a different destination. Like everyone's oh, going to go to a different place of closure for themselves right. on what that viewpoint of mom relationship, all of those things are just going to look right. differently depending on each person's individual experience. And I think oftentimes there's just people that, I mean, I was, I have some YouTube clips on 
whatever on YouTube. And there's always comments on there from when I spoke on the show, the doctors, and there'll be comments. Mm -hmm. She's an, your mom's an evil monster. She deserves death, like Um, all of these things. And so it's like people like really go into that or people would be like, you need to forgive her and all these things. And it's like, actually I can choose to do what feels me and my choice. I'm the only choose that. That's That's what I want other people I guess to be able to I just really want to back that up because I don't think that you would necessarily know this Joe but I've spent a lot of my career um, also working with boundary violating behaviors and perpetrators offenders perpetrators that's one of my specialties and I I also want to say because Chelsea and I cover a lot of episodes and and I'm sure that there are a lot of listeners who are just like oh there goes Bailey like taking up for you know, the the bad guy. But one thing that I would tell my my guys when I would work with them is I would say my number one goal is your future victim, which means that if I approach our relationship with their quality of life and their happiness and peace and safety in mind, that automatically also helps you. So don't get offended if you are not my priority. Your your potential future victims are my priority. Mm-hmm. And that naturally works its way backwards and it, and it helps them as well. And I will tell them, just like I said earlier, whenever I was like, you know, that really pisses me off that your mom did that. I will tell them that. I will say, you know, can I be honest with you? And they'll be like, yes, ma'am. And I'll be like, what you did to your wife or what you did to your child or what you did to your mom or your auntie or your cousin really pisses me off and that's not okay and not but and we're going to figure out how we don't do that anymore Mm -hmm. right and so I say that because even if there are people out here who are listening and they might be on the perpetrator side of this there are people who can help you do that so Mm -hmm. it helps you not not just you but it also potentially helps your potential future victims as well Mm -hmm. so reach out there are people there you know therapists like myself who who enjoy working on that side of the fence because in our mind it helps both sides Mm -hmm. when we get to do that absolutely absolutely and that's another thing like we have had some emails come through where it's sometimes hard to tell um, if a message is spam or if somebody else is sending it about somebody or what's happening. But we have had emails where someone says, like, I'm harming my child. And yeah. the way I always respond is, here are some resources. Let me help you find help. Obviously, my first thing is to make sure that child is safe when able. And then, but we, like I said, there's the accepts model. There are different things for if people are willing to get help, which, like yeah. I said, oftentimes doesn't happen, but there are there are options, and and all of that being said, you don't have to if you're a survivor or anything like or impacted in any way by this type of abuse, you don't have to have compassion for that person. Um, like that is something that you have your choice in. in so. How you choose to heal is correct. Yeah. As long as you're not inflicting harm on mm-hmm. other people. Absolutely. That's always my caveat is like you can do whatever you need to do to heal. 
as long as you stay within your lane and you don't further propagate that mm-hmm. that abuse or the pain. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, again, Joe, this has been so enlightening and it's been fun. I've really enjoyed being able to talk with you. Mm-hmm. It's so rejuvenating for me mm-hmm. to continue to learn so mm-hmm. much about a, a niche that I am not clinically specialized in or that I'm not specialized um, trained in. And I am just so grateful. And we could do that on and on. And Chelsea and I send our thanks and our love and our praise to you indefinitely. And we're appreciative of you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm also so appreciative of your time and your questions and just your openness to to learn. Okay. Well, if you haven't heard today, you're loved, you're worthy, you're valuable. And Charles, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye, guys. Hey, Wildside Tribe, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wildside Podcast. Make sure to tune in on Wildside Wednesdays. New episodes will drop each Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would love to hear from you. So if you have a wild case recommendation, email us at wildsidepodcast at gmail.com. That's wildside with a C. Or share your thoughts in the comments below. As always, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, and you're valuable. And we'll catch you on the The flip flip side. side.